I'd like to spend a little while this morning just thinking about uh, a verse that was there in that reading from Genesis 3. It's the verse 15. And I will put enmity. This is uh, God speaking to the serpent. It says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. This is a well-known a verse in the Bible, and uh, you may have heard it's uh, sometimes called the Proto-Evangelium or Proto-Evangelium, because here we have in embryo the first preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ all those centuries, those millennia ago in these words there in Eden. Uh, I'd like to look particularly at this to think with you about who exactly is the seed of the woman and what is at stake in this prophecy and how it particularly applies to us. Uh, he says, I, God says, I will put enmity between thy seed and her seed. The word seed in scripture is quite a common word and often it means uh, that which is to do with plant propagation. As you know, in the parables of Jesus, often we find there are parables involving seeds. But also in the Bible, it's a word that's applied to human beings and their descendants. And just as in botanical matters, the same word, seed, can be used to mean one or many, so in the reference to human beings, the same word, seed, can either mean one person or collectively people. In, the word, in, in Genesis, the book of Genesis, the word seed is quite an important word in that, ref, in that respect of people. Apparently it's used 59 times there. And it could be translated otherwise as descendants, children, offspring, or the line, the, the genealogical line. And it's often used with reference to the male side. And here is the first key reference in the Bible to human seed in this Proto-Evangelium. And it's immediately after Adam and Eve's fall into sin. And it's addressed to Satan, to the devil. Uh, but it's not for him in that sense. It's addressed to him. But the benefit of it is for Adam and Eve and for us human beings today. Now, when you come to this verse, uh, particularly if you are someone who has been to church regularly, you're probably your first instinct is to think of the Virgin Mary and that first Christmas when Jesus Christ was born as the seed of the woman. And that's an absolutely right kind of instinct. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is particularly traced back by Luke in his gospel in the third chapter to Adam. In Luke chapter 3, we have the genealogy of Jesus. Uh, it starts off in verse 23. Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age, being as was supposed, because of course the virgin birth means that God was his father by supernatural means. Being 30 years of age, being as was supposed, the son of Joseph. And then it's traced all the way back until you get to verse 38, 
which was the son of Enos, which was the son of Seth, which was the son of Adam, which was the son of God. And most certainly, the Lord Jesus Christ, and this is the prime uh, use of the word seed, the, the Lord Jesus Christ is the seed of the woman, the promised seed. And there are many references throughout the Bible to Christ in this way. Let me just take you to one very uh, well-known, important reference. In Isaiah chapter 7 and verses 10 to 14, we read about God telling Ahaz that he could ask a sign, any sign he wanted. Ahaz, through unbelief, prefers not to ask. Uh, and God replies, Hear ye now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will you weary, my God, also? Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Here is God's, we might say, imposed sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And as we know through the gospel accounts, this particularly refers to the Lord Jesus Christ and to his birth through his mother Mary. But there is also, as we're thinking of the word seed being individual or collective, we also need to bear in mind that there is a collective sense uh, of human beings within this word seed. So, for example, if we turn to Revelation chapter 12, where we have heaven's perspective on the rain and the work of the risen Christ, uh, we see everything from a heavenly perspective, and that's why so much of it is in imagery and metaphor, because we've not been to heaven yet. So we can only understand it in this worldly terms. So in Revelation chapter 12, uh, reading from verse 12, the devil is come down unto you having great wrath because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. And when the dragon saw that he was cast unto the earth, he persecuted the woman which had brought forth the man-child. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place, where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the face of the serpent. And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. And the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon cast out of his mouth. And the dragon was wroth with the woman, and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And there you see in verse 17 the use of that word seed collectively. And we can say that this is really applying this word to the whole church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, it's applying that word to everyone who is in Christ. And without getting too bogged down in different references, let me just quickly mention that in Galatians 3 and 4, those that are in Christ are particularly those who have been justified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 3 and 4, we haven't time to work through that, but it shows us that these are the ones who are the seed of Abraham and therefore have to be seen to be within this verse that 
the, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. So if we're thinking, yes, it's the secondary use of the word seed. The primary use applies to the Lord Jesus himself. But if we're thinking of the secondary use included in this collective seed, there is, of course, the Virgin Mary, that humble, godly woman. But there is also Eve, I put, suggest to you, Eve herself. Because as we read this chapter and parts of chapter 4, we realize that God was exceedingly gracious to Adam and Eve. And it seems that they believed this promise because firstly, Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. That means living. He believed that there was something of power, of life going to come out of her or out of her, her descendants. And for them, God himself made coats of skins and clothed them which is highly suggestive of animal sacrifice and preparatory to the system of sacrifices that were brought in under Moses, looking forward to the sacrifice of Christ for sinners. And just as they were clothed with those coats of skins, so God clothed them with the righteousness of Christ. And we have this sense, as we read on in chapter 4, that Eve was indeed expecting... God's deliverer. She, she didn't realize how long it would be before he came. So, for example, in chapter 4, verse 1, she called her first child, or they called her first child, Cain. Because she says, I have gotten a man from the Lord. The word Cain means gotten or acquired. She thought this was the seed, but he wasn't. He was a child of Satan in that sense. He was part of the other seed. And he murdered his brother Abel. But in chapter 4 and verse 25, Adam knew his wife again and she bare a son and called his name Seth, which means appointed. For God says, said, she hath appointed me another seed, notice that, another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. So all this suggests strongly that Adam and Eve were came to be included right at the beginning of time in this collective seed of the church. That our first parents, our first earthly parents, placed their hope in the seed of the woman yet to come, in Christ. And that Eve too became a child of faith, and therefore paradoxically, I suppose, a member of the seed of the woman. So that is what the seed is. Let's think now of what's at stake in this prophecy Remember, it's addressed to Satan first in the first instance, but Adam and Eve are listening in, and they believe the promise. In the first case, it speaks of war. God himself ensures that there will be war between Satan and the woman, and between Satan's seed and her seed. The word that's used there is enmity. Although the Lord Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace, as the Bible makes clear, he is also a man of war. He's the Lord of hosts, the captain of the hosts of the Lord. And in that prophecy, there is the prophecy of a collective struggle between the two seeds. Those who belong to Satan, that is all of us until we're saved by Christ, and those that belong to the Lord Jesus. The Bible says the whole world lies 
in the wicked one. It also says that uh, those who are, are not in Christ are in darkness, as John chapter 3, <coughs> verse 19 make clear. Let me just read that verse to you. And this is the condemnation that light is come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. He that believeth is not condemned but he that believeth not is condemned already. Here is the seed of Satan. Everyone outside of Christ whether or not they know it and many of course are completely unaware of it in that theological sense. They are the seed of of Satan. And there are some notable examples in the Bible of those members of the seed of Satan, this community of unbelief which is essentially at war with God, really trying to wipe out the seed of the woman. We have, for example, King Herod, Herod the Great, so-called, who exterminated all the baby boys at Bethlehem, two years old and under at the time of Jesus' birth in his determination to get rid of Jesus. Or in 2 Kings 11, you can read about Queen Athaliah and how she wiped out, as she thought, all of the seed of the particular king of Judah in an attempt to exterminate anybody who might, uh, who might dispossess her of the throne. She was probably the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, might have been the granddaughter. It's, it's not totally clear, I don't think. But she was the seed of Satan. God ensured this enmity was always there, but at the same time, as this prophecy makes clear, God in this war asserts the inevitability of the judgment of Satan, as well as the certainty of grace through the seed. It, that is, this seed of the woman shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Uh, it shall crush thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And we can think of how that's worked out in what happened at the cross of Christ as an example of what was going on through his life. Satan was attacking him. He was a man of sorrows, a man who of suffering. And we come to the cross, and this is, of course, devastating for Christ. But though two had wounds, there conquered one, and Jesus was his name. And so here, right after Satan seems to have won the greatest victory he could ever think of in ruining God's purpose and creation, it's as though God dashes the cup from his lips and says, you're not going to, you're, you're not, you're not going to win. The seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. Secondly, we think of what's at stake here. We might call it wood. We might call it wood. <laughs> I put it this way, just to remind us what Satan was trying to do. He was trying to ruin God's creation right at the start and his delight with the sons of men. This angel, so proud and so jealous, he was trying to ruin at the very moment of its uh, greatest beauty and creation. He's trying to ruin it. And he used a tree to tempt Eve, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But it was on a wooden cross that the Saviour triumphed over him. He brought sin and pain and sorrow into the world. Or at least God 
pronounced that, but it was Satan's activity that led to that and to thorns and thistles. But for us men and our salvation, the Son of God was crowned with thorns and became a man of sorrows. As I said already, both seeds were damaged, but only one sin, one seed wins outright. The seed of the woman crushes Satan's head. And that describes what happened at the cross of Christ. There are many things that are true about the cross of Christ, but let me just draw your attention to one thing that's often not noticed, is that it was also a place of triumph over the powers of evil. In Colossians 2, and chapter, Colossians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, it says, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. That's often what we think of in relation to the cross, that Jesus died for our sins to cover our law-breaking. That's, of course, absolutely primary. But verse 15 <coughs> is often overlooked. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it, that is, in the cross. It was a place of mighty victory. Yes, uh, so much is at stake in this prophecy. And then just one more thought, which if we've been thought of war and wood, let's just think of woman here. Think again of woman. All this will come upon Satan through the future seeds of the weak woman who have proved just such an easy target for his deception. And it's a target that the epistles in the New Testament mention, that she was the first to be deceived. She was, you know, she was putty in his hands, we might say. And she was there just, uh, and he conquered, it seems, with not a lot of uh, difficulty. But here God is saying... Eve herself, as one of many believers, was going to provide Satan with an early example of his defeat in the cosmic struggle between the two seeds. The very first person in the world to sin, along with her husband, of course, would be the very first person to be saved from sin's wretchedness. And there are a number of other things that are mightily true uh, as to what was going on at the beginning of the world, God displaying his, his, what he's going to do, raising uh, straight into heaven, taking straight into heaven, the Jude, Jude, the seventh from, uh, sorry, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, didn't see death. Uh, it's as though God is saying, I'm going to give you a preview of what's going to happen. And here he gives us a preview of his grace, in this wretched woman, Eve, so weak and so gullible and yet saved by grace. And like every sinner who's been justified by faith, no doubt after that moment in her long life, in those early days, she would have often reflected on her sin, but she would have often said to herself, my sin is covered, just as those animal coats cover my uh, cover me physically, so my sin is covered. And for her, for Eve, as for other believers, the God of peace crushed Satan under her feet. 
As a believer, she was raised to newness of life in Christ, even though she wouldn't have heard too much about that at that stage in redemption history. But in effect, she'd be raised to newness of life in Christ and she would fight Satan. And suddenly Satan finds this weak, defeated one has become someone who will be his enemy and who will triumph over him like every other believer in Christ. Proud Lucifer is humbled. And yet, through this seed. Now, why does it matter? Let me apply this in three ways, briefly. Well, firstly, of course, it matters, this prophecy, because salvation for sinners is through the seed of seeds, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, God's great purpose of love is revealed right at the beginning of time. Indeed, before time began, it was there, that he would magnify his Son, in causing him to die for his people and to build his church, in causing him to become our great substitute for our sin and our great redeemer. It's central and in a sense, and I I agree with what people say. Some people say there's a sense in which the rest of the Bible is just a commentary on the book of Genesis, especially these first few chapters. And there's a truth in that. The rest of the Bible is just the unfolding of God's great purpose. But the second lesson is this. Here is one of the weakest, worst, most guilty sinners ever. And if God was willing to do that, he's willing to save you and me. Whatever your sins. You can't have, our sins are of course appalling, but they can't be as appalling as Adam and Eve's sins, can they? In Adam, all shall die. We, we are children of Adam. We're children of wrath. We can't have that responsibility, the same responsibility that Adam had. And yet, if Adam and Eve could be saved, you and I can be saved. There's not one of us that could say, well, God would never save me. And maybe Satan is attacking you and accusing you and saying, God will never have mercy on you. God will never receive you or you've sinned away your salvation, don't believe him. He is a liar from the beginning. The worst, weakest, and most guilty sinner can be saved through Christ. And then thirdly, the defeat of Satan and the victory of Christ is absolutely certain. I could, of course, turn you to many passages there, but let me just turn you to one Old Testament passage And then one New Testament passage. In Psalm 72, this is a prophecy concerning Solomon, verses 7 to 9. But it's also a prophecy concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. In his days shall the righteous flourish and abundance of peace, so long as the moon endureth. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea, and from the river unto the ends of the earth. They that dwell in the wilderness shall bow before him. And his enemies shall lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and of the Isles shall bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba shall offer gifts. Yea, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. And there is surely a reference, an indirect reference there to the snake who had to go on his belly from Genesis 3 onwards, licking 
the dust. And this is part of the victory over Satan, that people from every nation, every tribe, every kingdom will be saved and brought into the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then second passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and all power, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him, that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Here is the final outworking of that prophecy in Genesis 3.15, that the serpent's head will be crushed to death. And Jesus, the seed of the woman, will be utterly triumphant and God will be all in all. Don't lose heart, brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, Satan's defeat is in essence, it's sealed. The victory of Christ is certain.